That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. It's Friday, June 12, 2020. As you may have guessed, this isn't Bill Press. This is Chris Liu. Bill is taking a well-deserved vacation, and I'm honored that Bill has asked me to sit in for him. After two weeks when protests for social justice dominated the news, we have a trifecta of news stories this week. Protests are continuing around the country, but a lot of attention is now turning to police reform and the possibility of congressional action. We also have the return of COVID-19 to the news, which, let's be honest, never really disappeared. Cases and hospitalizations are surging in parts of the country, and that's raising new concerns about the economy. And soon we'll have the resumption of the presidential campaign, with Donald Trump announcing plans to hold a campaign rally next Friday, June 19th in Tulsa. We have a great group of panelists for this week's political roundtable. Elena Beverly is a Democratic strategist who was a former aide in the White House Office of Urban Affairs during the Obama administration. Welcome, Elena. Good morning, Chris. Uh, You can follow Elena on Twitter at Ms. Elena Beverly. We have Jason Dick, the deputy editor of CQ Roll Call and the host of the Political Theater Podcast, which I strongly recommend. Welcome, Jason. It's great to be here, Chris. And you can follow Jason at Jason J. Dick. And Matt Gertz is a senior fellow at Media Matters for America. You can follow him at Matt Gertz. Welcome, Matt. Uh, good to be back. And since we're shamelessly plugging, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44. So let's dive into the issues. Let's start with police reform. Uh, there are now the more protests continuing around the country, uh, as well as increasing calls for police reform. This week, House Democrats released a legislative proposal, and on the Senate side, Tim Scott is leading the efforts. George Floyd's brother also testified on Capitol Hill this week, and we have a clip of that. When you watch your big brother, who you looked up to your whole entire life, die, die begging for his mom, he didn't deserve to die over $20. I'm asking you, is is that what a black man is worth? $20? This is 2020. Enough is enough. The people marching in the streets are telling you enough is enough. Jason, you're the expert on Capitol Hill. Is there a chance that Congress can actually reach a consensus on legislation? And where is Donald Trump in all of this? Um, On Capitol Hill, I mean, I am, you know, I've been burned on this before in saying that uh, there is... um, that members are motivated to come to a solution and to compromise and so forth. But there is something about this that feels a little different. Um, I mean, it, this is a, you know, one of those, I, I feel like this is an inflection point um, for, for the country. I mean, the world is watching. Uh, I had a uh, conversation with house majority with James Clyburn uh, earlier this week uh, for another uh, podcast. I, I co-host uh, CQ and Congress and um, the majority whip, I mean, this is a black man from South Carolina, 
uh, he is, is, uh, he has been around for a while. He knows you know, kind of the highways and byways of, of, uh, how things can fail or succeed in Capitol Hill. And he said that, you know, this, this is different. I mean, be, and partly is because we were able to see the whole thing, you know, uh, you know, the entire, uh, incident. And he says that he thinks that that has, has really shook people and not just in the public, but in Congress. And I don't know, I mean, I don't think we're going to get the entire expansive sort of Democratic proposal that was unveiled on Monday. But, you know, Tim Scott, uh, who's also from South Carolina as a Republican and is black. I mean, he this is not a, a new issue for him. And I don't I don't think that uh, I don't think he's going to let this go necessarily either. And I think that there are some things that they can coalesce around, like just simply having a database of, of violent incidents on pr police brutality, uh, you know, streamlining training and banning chokeholds. I mean, like very some very basic stuff there which would have kept George Floyd alive, is, I think, is a real possibility. Uh, Elena, let me ask you, the president did a roundtable yesterday in Dallas where he promised quick action. But we know that beyond the simple issue of how the police interact with communities of color, there are much, diff uh, much uh, deeper systemic inequalities when it comes to health care and education and jobs. Uh, is anyone talking about those issues? Well, I believe the protesters are speaking to those issues. Um, you know, in the words of Brian Stevenson, when it comes to police, uh, police themselves, uh, that in many ways, slavery did not end, it just evolved. And that's how, that's why we see some of the white supremacist sort of tactics um, and the hierarchy of white supremacy in the police, um, in the way that police uh, conduct themselves frequently. Um, so you're, we're seeing, you know, the, the impetus for this conversation is police accountability, but everyone knows that that the systemic racism um, and injustices and inequities um, in a myriad of uh, parts of society, uh, whether it be uh, you know employment conditions or healthcare and public health or education, that all of those are um, are part of what is motivating uh, African Americans specifically to come out and to protest this moment. So it is the way that the state acts um, in terms of keeping us safe, but is also the way the state acts in terms of investing in our communities, ensuring you know, opportunity and, quality and decent quality of life. And, and uh, President Trump is going to use this as an opportunity now um, to talk not just about, about policing reform, but he's going to say, I'm certain, coming up on Juneteenth when he goes to Tulsa, he's going to say that the economy was under his regime was the best ever for African-Americans. Um, and I'm certain that you and I will all talk about this later in the podcast, but he's going to say that, that his economy was the best for African-Americans. He's going to say that he is the president who's helped to create opportunity. And if all of those things were the case, um, yes, we would all be angry about George Floyd, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that the movement would not be as strong as it is because people would not be so tired. People would not be so exhausted. African-Americans would not be uh, so widely in the streets. You know, Matt, let me turn to the other side of the political spectrum. You've had this week a parade of Trump administration officials saying there is no systemic racism. Um, I know you spend way too much time monitoring right-wing media. How are they covering this issue in terms of both what the problem is as well as what the solution should be? I mean, I think broadly the coverage is that the problem <laughs> is 
uh, violent rioting and the solution is crackdowns by the police and at times the military. Uh, the debate on right-wing media is always very, very different from what we see uh, basically in front of our eyes. Uh, and, and I think that that's never really been the case to the same extent uh, as uh, the coverage that they've had of the George Floyd protests. Um, you see them continuing to use uh, footage shot a week, 10 days, two weeks ago of uh, violence in the streets in order to try to delegitimize those protests, to push back against the idea that there is systemic racism, that there are problems that need to be solved here. Uh, and I think that that uh, will be a real problem for uh, attempts to pass legislation. Uh, you know, um, there was a piece from Tim Alberta of Politico earlier this week that uh, basically pointed out that a clip of uh, Tucker Carlson attacking Nikki Haley for fairly banal comments about the protests had gone uh, viral among potential 2024 Republican presidential candidates and their staffs, that they were uh, very, very worried about the idea of being attacked by Tucker Carlson in a similar way. Uh, Fox News still has an overwhelming uh, strength among uh the Republican base and Republican politicians. Uh, and, and I think that we are going to see that uh, play a role uh, as the path towards reform goes forward. Well, and I think that's a great pivot to the broader conversation of the politics of protesting. Um, it is only Friday morning, but I think it's fair to say the outrageous Donald Trump tweet of the week, uh, which I think even by his standards was probably a new low uh, was on Tuesday when he went after uh, Martin Gugino, a 75-year-old activist in Buffalo who was pushed by police uh, and is actually still hospitalized for serious uh, injuries. And uh, for those of you that missed the tweet, uh, Trump set, tweeted, Buffalo protester shoved by police could be an Antifa provocateur. 75-year-old Martin Gugino was pushed away after appearing to scan police communications in order to black out the equipment at OANN, I watched, he fell harder than was pushed. Was aiming scanner, could be a setup, question mark? Uh, Matt, let me turn to you. Uh, is this a clever way for Trump to play to his base, or was he even overplaying his hand on this one a bit? So my general theory around Donald Trump and things that he sees on his television is that it is not a clever plan to distract people. It's just him getting distracted, that he just seems psychologically incapable of avoiding, uh, you know, spewing out whatever conspiracy theory he sees in front of him. Usually it's Fox News, uh, which is pretty bad. Uh, but OAN is uh, even worse. It's fringier. It's, the it's more conspiratorial. Jordan. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it is an outlet that is very clearly trying to make a play for some of Fox's audience by portraying itself as even more uh, sycophantic uh, than Fox News is. If you spend any time at all watching it, and I, I don't really recommend that, it's the closest <laughs> thing that we have to North Korean style state TV. Uh, in the United States. It's really bonkers stuff, like Illuminati conspiracy theory level bonkers stuff. Um, it's also uh, very poorly done, which is why he doesn't tend to watch a lot of it. Just It has very low production values. It, it is a garbage network, frankly, um, which is why generally he doesn't watch OAN. He watches Fox News. But in this case, 
uh, yeah, he picked up uh, one of their crazy conspiracy theory segments, which was put on by a guy who used to work for Sputnik, the Russian uh, propaganda channel. Um, and and this is this is what happens as a result. Um, you know, he pushes the conspiracy theory into uh, the mainstream, and now we're all talking about it. Uh, Jason, not surprisingly, whenever the president tweets something, his supporters on the Hill uh, literally run for the hills. Uh, they claim they haven't seen the tweet. They're too busy to talk. We have a clip of a couple of senators dodging questions on this. I didn't see it. Um, so I'd have to, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure that my office will be able to get me a copy of it. I just saw the tweet and I know nothing of the episode. <laughs> it's uh, the it's the Sergeant Schultz defense, you know, I, from Hogan's I Heroes. I see nothing. I hear nothing. I mean, it's just absurd. Uh, I mean, you know, the, these are the most plugged in people in the world. Uh, they know exactly what he's saying and what and and they just desperately want to, you know, change the, um, you know, change change the topic. I mean, like that, you know, for for a couple of years back, you know, the 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 tactic that a lot of them used, like Marco Rubio particularly uh, used this, was that he would pretend he was talking on his phone, uh, and when he wasn't, you know, and it, just so he could like get past the gantlet of of uh, people in the Senate subway, uh, and now and some people have just they just say that they don't do hallway interviews at all, Mike Lee, for instance. Um, so it's uh, yeah, th th this is like uh, it, it's kind of like dealing with a crazy. Um, uh, relative, you know, you just like, of course, you know what's going on with them, but you just can't bring yourself to, you're, you're just talking about exhausted, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the ranks of people who want to talk about anything else, uh, in, in public office, but what Donald Trump is tr tweeting about is, uh, well, it's pretty much the ranks of, of Congress. But Jason, can I ask you, is there real consternation or any consternation on the Hill about what, this does for them politically or is their view you know what next week there'll be something else um i it, it seems to be sinking in that they are potentially heading for a pretty rough november um i mean you know a, a few months ago we were not talking about the um uh, you know, the possibility of the Senate flipping, you know, we thought eh, probably status quo, you know, in, in the House, maybe the Democrats lose a few, you know, seats, maybe they gain a few. Uh, now we're talking about the, the very distinct possibility of the Senate, uh, uh, you know, going into Democratic hands. I mean, they're worried. They don't say that publicly, uh, but they, they know that this is just not, you know, they, they just can't get a foothold in, in something that's favorable to them. Uh, Elena, let me ask you, I mean, uh, um, we did have a couple of senators sort of speak out, uh, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and I think significantly Mitt Romney was out protesting last Sunday. How significant is that? And when you look at the polling on this, the American people seem to be sympathetic with peaceful protesters, although admittedly uncomfortable with some of the violence. Where do the politics on this uh, go more broadly? I do think that Mitt Romney is genuine in his support. Uh, he was out there. He said Black Lives Matter. He was out there protesting um, peacefully. However, I think for uh, for the the masses, for the wider audience that is both participating in these protests and watching them in support, I think the larger question is, what does that really mean in terms of action. I think this is no longer a time where lip service is going to be sufficient. And with, as you mentioned, the policing vehicle, um, the justice and policing 
uh, sweeping reform that was introduced in the House, uh, and um, and then the Republicans saying that they are going to um, develop their own policing reform. And there's wide interest in having this um, actually result in uh, some legislation of some sort. Then the question is not whether or not they can uh, Republican senators can find their way to a Black Lives Matter hashtag or whether or not they can find themselves at, at a protest. The, the main question is, how will they wrangle their colleagues in order to uh, to ensure that there is bipartisan reform on this issue that ensures police accountability? That's a really important point and something we'll talk about in future uh, episodes. But as we shift topics, let's take a brief break. This is the Bill Press Pod, and I'm Chris Liu sitting in for Bill. Today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers. During the coronavirus pandemic, America's teachers from preschool to the university have been working harder than ever, teaching online, helping parents develop lesson plans for kids at home, and preparing to welcome students back to the classrooms. We salute the members of the AFT under President Randy Weingarten and thank them for their support of the Bill Press pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with the Bill Press Pod. We're on with Matt Gertz, Jason Dick, and Elena Beverly. Well, the president seems to be over the pandemic, but it's clearly not going away. We're seeing record hospitalizations in Texas, North Carolina, Alabama, and other parts of the country. In Arizona, hospitals have been instructed to activate their emergency response plans. And not surprisingly, the sharp increase comes 14 days after Memorial Day when we saw many large gatherings around the country. 
But Trump is ready to declare victory and restart his rallies. But we're not out of the woods. Uh, Elena, we seem to be at the point when uh, this kind of rush to reopen Mm -hmm. um, seems to be going full speed and no governor wants to pull back on this. Um, Are we simply just going to accept, you know, 500 to 1,000 people a day? dying for the next few months? I am very concerned about the rush to reopen. Um, If you have been paying attention to the White House rhetoric, even at the highest points of the pandemic, they were pushing that we are coming back, the economy is coming back and coming back greater than ever. But we know that uh, COVID-19 has a disproportionate impact on communities of color, uh, specifically African-Americans. So where African-Americans are 13% of the population, but in counties that are majority African-American. We are um, over over uh, over 50% of the infections and over 60% of the deaths. Um, and so when we, if there is the reopening of the economy, the, the communities that can least afford to, to stand back, to withdraw, to um, not to engage, those communities are those who are on the front line who are going to be ex- exposed at greater rates. Um, which means that the the death toll is just going to increase primarily in communities of color. Um, but having said that, uh, Donald Trump is eager to to claim and bank on the economy. He's he's eager to get people back to work uh, because the economy has been his lifeline to reelection. Uh, and so you, we saw um, last week that he that they claimed that we we've added two and a half million more jobs to the economy. Um, and uh, we know that that, that calculation was uh, a miscalculation and that so many of those jobs were people who were furloughed, who were coming back to work and not, that, not the creation of new jobs, and that we know over 2 million people lost their jobs permanently last month. Um, and although white em- unemployment ticked down, African-American unemployment rose to 16.8%. So we have two important narratives to be mindful of. One is that the faster we open and the less prepared we are, the more vulnerable um, those frontline workers are going to be, uh, those who are disproportionately in the service industry, those who cannot afford not to go back are, are more vulnerable. And then secondly, we have a president who would be willing to fudge the numbers in order to ensure that uh, he is looking good on the on the economy front for re-election. You know, Matt, Elena just talked about two narratives. We're also sort of seeing two Americas right now. We have one group that's diligently wearing their masks and practicing social distancing, and we have a whole other group uh, that's out at bars and pool parties. Where do the politics ultimately lie on this as you sort of look at, at these two Americas? Um I mean, I would be very hesitant to say that we're even going to hold the uh, America that is wearing masks and being diligent about it. I, I, to be honest with you, I, I'm starting to see backsliding in my own neighborhood in Washington, D.C. around that stuff, too. I think uh, a lot of Americans just sort of are giving up on coronavirus and are done with it, which is a problem because the coronavirus is not done with us. I mean, looking back at the decisions to uh, shutter businesses, uh, to adopt social distancing, uh, the principle here was that we were going to accept a staggering economic damage uh, in order to slow the spread of the virus, keep hospitals from getting crushed, 
and buy time to develop more testing capacity, more contact tracing capacity, quarantine capacity, uh, and therapies and move towards the vaccine. Um, And we just sort of gave up on that principle. We started reopening. We started uh, opening businesses again without really accomplishing any of that except for temporarily preventing hospitals from getting crushed. Um, and now we're, we're seeing uh, the number of uh, cases tick back up, uh, and it's hard to see where that ends exactly. Jason, Elena just mentioned last week's jobs numbers, which seem to have taken a little bit of the momentum away from additional economic relief. Uh, and obviously, it seems like everyone wants to put the pandemic behind them, but we still have you know upwards of 21 million people out of work. We've got an economy that's sort of recovering, but not much. What's the prospect of Congress and the administration coming together to provide additional relief? Um, I, I don't. I really don't know at this point is the, the very simple answer on that. I mean, you know, earlier this week, the, you know, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, who has been the kind of the adult in the room uh, in terms of being able to talk to both Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi about their relief legislation. I mean, he said that we're going to need something. Uh, and, you know, we this is not really the time, you know, the, to uh, to just halt things. And Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, also said, you know, we're this is the, uh, the this is going to be a real challenge for the rest of the year. Um, and and so I I mean I think they'll do something, but I mean I <clears throat> I'm going to try to tie two things together that are gonna, are kind of difficult, but it does make sense in the, in that the Republicans are really uh, insisting that there is some sort of liability waiver for businesses that reopen. Uh, so that people don't sue restaurants or movie theaters or whatever, and um, you know, what, a very of interest. You know, we, we said earlier in the program uh, that uh, Donald Trump seems to be over the the coronavirus and he's going to uh, restart his rallies. Well, if you look at the registration form for the Tulsa rally, it includes a liability waiver that if you get coronavirus. You don't sue Trump for campaign, the Trump 2020 campaign. That's right. Or the venue in Tulsa. Right. (laughs) And so, I mean, so, I mean, think about that if you're a big MAGA person, right? You know, like this is all a big Democratic hoax to sabotage the president. Uh, But then the president says, by the way, if you get COVID, don't sue me. You can't sue me if you want to go to this rally. And so that is the biggest hurdle, I think, is that the Republicans really want to try to institute some sort of liability reform. There's nothing more Republican than wanting to stick it to the trial lawyers, right? Uh, and 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 I think that's going to be they got to get over that hurdle to get anything significant uh, as far as another relief package. Well, and let's add on that liability waiver, and I'm glad you pointed that out. It's a it's a waiver for something that's a hoax that was supposed to go away in April when it got warmer, and um, right. Yeah, we need a waiver. Well, that, 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 that's a good segue. Let's, I mean, um, yesterday, uh, last night, the Republican uh, National Committee announced that they're going to shift part of their convention to Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, and I think they're going to hold some of the meetings in Charlotte and some of the big events uh, in, in Jacksonville. Uh, Matt, is that feasible at all? I don't know. Um, <laughs> honestly, uh, it's, it's really hard to say. Uh, coronavirus cases seem to be ticking up in both locations. Um, and, and who's to say where that will go in the next couple of months? Uh, I would not uh, bet on cases getting lower in that time. I think things are going to continue to get worse on a pretty grand scale. Um, 
But if the president wants to have his non-social distanced, no masks event, even amid a huge uh, pandemic that is killing a thousand Americans a day, I think he's going to do it anyway. Let's talk about the hubris of that, right? That here is the, the you know the leader of our country who has even no matter how you cut it, he has a following, he has a base, and he cares nothing for the lives and well-being of his base. That's what's so shocking to me, that regardless of, uh, I mean, you could say that, and and Joe Biden has said that, that the duty of the president is the duty to care for all of us, but this man doesn't even care about the health and welfare of his own base, and that's what's so shocking to me. Well, Elena, I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't know if you all saw this. Mike Pence tweeted out a photo earlier this week of him visiting the Trump campaign headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, and there's a mast in front of him, I don't know, 75 to 100 people, not a single one of his campaign workers, uh, socially distancing or wearing masks. Uh, and as many people pointed out, that's actually a violation of the, uh, the, 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 the phase one or phase two requirements in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So they quickly pulled that down. Uh, but Elena, I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, uh, we haven't, we've now gone 27 minutes without mentioning uh, Joe Biden. And I think at least in the last couple <laughs> minutes, we should talk a little bit about this. Uh, Jason, do you have a sense, looking at what the Republicans are doing, what the Democrats are going to do for their convention? So they've been remarkably um, kind of quiet. I mean, they did move it, you know, originally it was going to be in July uh, and, and they moved it to, um, you know, the, the week of August 17th, right before the Republicans are scheduled to have their whatever they're going to call it now, uh, Charlotte Jacksonville Express or whatever. Um, and but, you know, the, the, the last, you know, sort of concrete thing we heard was that they did want to still have a convention in Milwaukee, uh, but they would try to ad adhere to social distancing health guidelines. And that might involve doing some of it virtually uh, and also doing some of it in satellite areas of the country, which would just so happen to be in swing states. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so, but we haven't heard a whole lot and, and it's, it's, it's weird because, you know, for, for our, you know, like news organization, I'm, I'm one of the point people uh, for the secret service and credentialing and working with the galleries. And, you know, this is kind of nerve wracking because you're trying to, you know, keep people safe and plan something. And we don't even know where everything's going to be uh, for either convention. And it's two months away. Uh, we have a couple minutes left before we wrap this up. And I do want to spend a little bit more time on Vice President Biden. I mean, he is uh, tried to stay relevant in the news. He's done a couple of speeches, which the networks, unfortunately, don't seem to be covering. But yet he keeps rising in the polls. Uh, there is this sense, and, I, and I'd ask all of you for a quick reaction, that the obvious vice presidential choice for him right now is Kamala Harris. Uh, let, me, let me just go around the horn and see if people agree. Elena? I do agree, although he does have some exceptional um, choices of people to pick from. And I do think that he should pick an African-American woman. Uh, among the list, we have Stacey Abrams, we have Val Demings, um, as well, you know, as well as Kamala Harris. Matt? Uh, I don't do punditry. Pass. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, 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 you're never wrong, then, if you never do punditry. I know. I've got a great record. Uh, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, not not to just do sort of the second on what Elena was saying, but certainly Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, you know, make a lot of sense. Um, Val Demings, I mean, these are all 
Uh, I mean, California is not a swing state. And I don't think uh, Biden's worried about losing California, but it, do, it does have, almost have this like sort of Austin-Boston connection, you know, of, the, of, of old where, you know, two different coasts uh, and, and two different sort of uh, generations. And I, I think that she does make a lot of sense. But Abrams, I mean, she's great. Uh, and Georgia is just like this sort of fascinating place uh, to, that, that is on the table. And Demings, you know, being from Florida, being a cop herself mm-hmm. uh, in, in a previous life, I mean, she's, uh, and also being one of the impeachment managers, uh, it, it's a, you know, he's, he's got a, a wealth of, of, uh, of, you know, candidates there to choose from. And to be clear, re- well, oh, sorry, one, one, one last point on this. Yes, I believe he should pick an African-American woman. And I think that that is generally where um, where the spirit of voters is at this point for the Democrats. However, I think he's going to be sure to pick a woman that will also bring along the electoral map. So like as um, as Jason mentioned, you know, Val Demings brings Florida to the table. Stacey Abrams brings Georgia to the table. But she also has. Fair, fair fight, which is uh, so she has reached into ten states where he, she's been focusing on um, uh, electoral reform and voting rights, and then um, and then Kamala Harris as a former prosecutor uh, in this moment of trying to ensure prosecutorial reform and police accountability has you know has some some real chops in this space. So in addition to bringing California to the table, which is almost a, a given. She also brings um, a policy expertise that I think people are hungry for in this moment. And that's an important point as well. I mean, given uh, Biden's age, somebody who can immediately jump into the uh, um, uh, position if needed. Well, let's move to the final segment of the podcast, the story of the week. Each week, we ask our panelists to come up with a story uh, that caught their eye. It can be something serious, funny, or just random. Uh, Jason, let me start with you. Uh, I thought I was so prepared for this uh, up until late last night. Uh, I had the, I read this awesome story uh, in Texas Monthly about a guy who I'd interviewed, a filmmaker I'd interviewed last year named Ben Masters. Uh, it was called The Ocelot Whisperer, and it was about him making a, a film about ocelots in Texas. And it was just this cool thing because Ben's a really nice guy and a filmmaker and a cowboy and all this kind of stuff. And I was just, I was that was going to be it. And then I saw the news that Harry Reid is cancer free. And I'm like, what? I mean, I mean, and you know, this guy is 80 years old. Uh, Harry Reid is definitely one of my favorite kind of characters. This isn't anything to do with his politics uh, or his, you know, the way that he conducted the Senate and so forth. He's just a character. He isn't a, he's like a Mark Twain sort of, you know, Americana thing. And, you know, he did this experimental cancer therapy because he was basically a goner. And he'd been telling people that for a couple of years. Uh, and, and you know, he's understated, if anything, in a lot of these ways. And the guy is cancer free now. And Paul Kane's you know, story about the treatment and about um, Reed and how he conducted himself in this is, is a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great read. And it's just a great story too. And I just think like, what a tough SOB Harry Reed is. I mean, like, you know, what a great, like sort of story that is. I will recommend that story as well. And it's an amazing thing. Uh, apparently before the February caucuses in, in Nevada, a lot of politicians were, thought they were paying sort of their last respects to Harry Reid. And now four months later, he's cancer free, which is incredible. Uh, Elena, what's your story of the week? I wish mine was more inspirational, but we all saw that um, that in Georgia, uh, we had the we had a primary uh, and uh, for two Senate seats and the presidential primary last week. And 
uh, Georgia saw record turnout and also saw uh, voters having to stand in line for hours, for hours in order to cast their ballot. And even though um, there was mail-in voting, there were so there uh, that process was rife with with um, uh, inconsistencies and difficulties, and so people still had to go to the polls. Polling places were were limited, uh, and so we saw just an enormous lines. This is such a terrible forecast for what we are going to see in November. We have to get this right. We have to get it right both to ensure that people know um, that they are able to, or ensure in some states that they are able to vote in by mail, um, and, and also to make sure that the uh, that the voting machines are working and that our polling places have enough access and space during a pandemic for people for people to vote. That's an important point. Thank you, Elena, for mentioning that. Matt, inspirational, humorous, offbeat, what do you have for us? So as uh, frequent <laughs> listeners of this pod know, I always pick a story that backs up my favorite media conspiracy theory, <laughs> uh, which, which is that the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Uh, <laughs> And that they are spinning out stories of ridiculous American wealth in order to bring about the revolution. You, you'd uh, think that the yeah prices would come down if socialists were in charge of the real estate section. No, no, no. But, but what they're trying to do, they're bringing about the revolution oh. by showing the rest of us oh, uh, okay. what the wealthy do. So to that effect, Catherine Clark has a story in the Wall Street Journal this week titled What It Takes to Run Spelling Manor, the Disneyland of Private Homes, uh, which uh, is about... The uh, former owner of the uh, mansion built by Aaron Spelling, which is 56,500 square feet with a bowling alley, wine cellar, and tasting room, and a beauty parlor with uh, massage and tanning rooms. Uh, the I don't know what you're talking owners, about. I have a tasting room. Uh, <laughs> the owners, one of whom is the Formula One heiress Petra Eccleston, uh, sold it recently for $120 million, which inspired uh, Mr. Palmer, one of the owners, to start a company to address the challenges of running such a large household, because it was apparently more difficult than he expected to run uh, a five-acre property that requires 35 to 50 full-time staff members. Uh, it's tough out there. It's hard. So, uh, <laughs> hard out though for a mogul. <laughs> thank you, Catherine Clark. The revolution thanks you for your service. <laughs> that was great. I, so I, I will admit, a couple years ago, I was in L.A. and I took one of those um, uh, star home tours, actually. And, and you couldn't identify anyone's house, but the one that you could all clearly identify was Spelling Manor because it's literally one of the largest... Uh, private residences in the United States. It's, it's spectacular. You can but... read all about it in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, that wraps up this week's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. I'd like to thank our guests, Elena Beverly, Jason Dick, and Matt Gertz. This is Chris Luce sitting in for Bill. Follow me on Twitter at ChrisLu44 and have a good and safe weekend. <laughs>